There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. It's great to have you with us again this week. Thanks for joining us. It's a real pleasure and honor to have this week's guest. She's one of the Fox News Channel's most recognized faces, a best-selling author, co-anchor of Fox News election coverage, and the award-winning anchor and executive editor of Fox's The Story with Martha McCallum. Martha McCallum, thanks for joining us today on Next Steps Forward. Hi, Chris. Great to be here. Uh, great to have you. Uh, you know, we were joking a little bit before the show about how I'm a little nervous. Uh, I'm on the other side of the interview today, so <laughs> help us get through. You're, you're doing fantastic. Still early, but thank you. <laughs> So Martha's reported five presidential elections and many of the biggest national and international news stories of our time. She covered the post 9-11 war on terror, the funerals of President George H.W. Bush and Pope John Paul II. She's interviewed some of the foremost thought leaders and influential politicians of the past two decades. And just this year, Martha released her first book, Unknown Valor, A Story of Family, Courage and Sacrifice from Pearl Harbor to Iwo Jima, which was well received and just one of the topics we're gonna discuss today. So lots of things to talk about here, Martha. You know, I know more than a few folks in journalism, and I'm always fascinated by how many of them really had an interest in the news in an early age, and, and that certainly applies to you. Uh, I understand that you watched the Watergate hearings when you were just nine years old. What was it, <laughs> what was it about that chapter in our history that was so interesting to you at a very young age? You know, I, I, um, I was young. I thought maybe I was eight years old. I remember my sister, my older sister, uh, was always very interested in news, and she was a teenager at that point. And she kept impressing upon me that there was this huge historic event that was going on, the hearings that were taking place. And so we would sit next to each other on the floor in front of the TV. And she would explain to me about John Dean and um, John Haldeman and Ehrlichman and all of the players and George Mitchell. Um, and we would go through what was happening. And I, from that moment on, I really have always been more interested in in fact and history than in fiction. Every pretty much everything I read is, for the most part, nonfiction. Um, I I just thought the drama of the characters that were involved in that saga. And I remember the day that Richard Nixon and Pat Nixon, the first lady, got on Marine One and he turned around and flashed those V's uh, before leaving and, you know, sort of hovering over the White House and, and taking off after resigning the presidency of the United States, which is just a, just an earthquake, you know, for the nation. And it just really resonated with me. Even as a little kid, I thought, this is dramatic. This is amazing to be a witness to history. And I didn't decide then, obviously, what I wanted to do as a career, but that that excitement of the drama that surrounded that moment really stuck with me. So you end up as an anchor now, but those early aspirations weren't quite uh, taking down the path of being a, a famous news anchor. <laughs> you think about being an actress and a director rather than being a journalist. That's right. And you even studied at New York's Circle in the Square Theater School for two years after graduating from college. I did. What, what drew you to theater? What was the interest there? 
I always loved theater. Um, I, you know, I think that there's a performance element to all of these things, you know, and there's a, there's a drama element to all of these things. And, and so I see now how they all come together. But at that time, um, I did major in political science in college, so, uh, and government. So I was always very interested in politics. Uh, but I also loved theater. So I minored in theater and after college, I definitely had that feeling that, you know, you only get these opportunities once in life to be young and to not really have any, you know, anything tying me down. I wasn't married, any of that at that point. And I decided to, without telling my parents, audition for this program in New York as a graduate school. And at the time I was also um, kind of going the, the law school route. I had taken my LSATs. Um, they were not, the scores were not really, you know, I was not going to Harvard Law. So I, I thought, all right, well, let's see, you know, let's pursue this theater thing for a while, which I, I did. So I got accepted to this Circle and Square program, which was an amazing experience. It's a two-year, very intensive uh, theater experience that includes directing and dance and voice and all of it. And it was um, an extraordinary life lesson for me. There's a ton of discipline to it. And it's, um, it's an emotional experience. It's, you know, digging deep for those, uh, you know, to connect with characters. And I, I loved it. I still love the theater. I'm, I'm so bereft right now that there is, that all of these theaters that surround my office are all shuttered. And um, I just have always loved the excitement of the stage. So I, I think it all does come together in its own way, uh, the work that I do now. But I'm so grateful that my parents sort of, you know, gave me the free reign to do what I wanted to do in those years in my early 20s because uh, it's an experience that I'll always treasure. A lot of actors and actresses pay the rent by waiting tables, as did you. Oh, yeah. But it was another waitress, one who was working in the news, that sparked your interest in journalism. That's right. What did Julia Jordan, who was also working at CNN at the time, say to cause you to make such a, a dramatic change in your career paths? So it was interesting. You know, she and I were good buddies. We were waiting tables together. There's always a lot of camaraderie in a restaurant. I don't know if you've ever worked in one, but, you know, between the kitchen and the, the waiters and the waitresses and the managers, and we were on the Upper West Side in New York. So I was actually working at a financial magazine at the time, also doing fact-checking, um, you know, researching things for other people's stories, which I love doing. And then I would go over to the restaurant and wait tables at night to, you know, put it all together to pay the rent. So uh, she started, she got an internship, I think it was at the, in the beginning at CNN. And so we would all gather early in the evening at four o'clock for our free dinner of pasta before we started our shift. So you didn't want to miss the free dinner. And she was just talking about what she was doing at CNN and sitting in the story meetings and listening to the producers and just something clicked in me that, you know, that this was something that would kind of bring together all of my interests in storytelling and, um, and news and government and politics, which I had always loved. So, uh, it, it was really some, it was definitely one of those moments when you sort of think, Hmm, that's where I should be. That's what I should be doing. And I, I shortly after that, I got a job, you know, working at this magazine, doing financial news and um, learning the ropes there. And it's funny because many years later, I ran into Julia Jordan at an art opening downtown in New York for it was art students. And I said, you know, 
guess what I'm doing? And, she, and I told her, and, and she said, guess what I'm doing? She said, I'm a playwright. <laughs> so <laughs> we really s- sort of swapped. Swap, um, yeah. And uh, she's been successful as well. So kind of a cool story. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. And obviously that was a, a major life-changing decision. What advice do you have for people out there listening to us that they're recognizing and acting upon? You know, there's a fork in the road. Uh, what do they do to succeed in that in that career? Yeah. You know, I've always been, I'm not a big planner. I'm not a big, this is where I want to be in three years and five years. Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty firm believer in following your gut and listening to sort of what your path is meant to be. And I believe there's a spiritual side to that as well. So I, I think that you do have to, you know, give things serious thought and consideration, but when something's tugging at you, you do need to listen to it. And we only get one time to go around in this life. And so when something is, is saying to you, this is an idea that you uh, you keep returning to, you need to, I believe you need to listen to it. So I, I think instinct and gut and head and heart combined are really what it's all, it's always been about for me. You know, I always knew that I didn't want to work in, in an office job and that I wanted my career to be something that had meaning to me. And I didn't really care that much about whether or not I was going to make any money doing it. I've been fortunate to have be become successful in that um, as well. But I really think that because I was always driven by a passion and enthusiasm, uh, the rest of it ended up coming together, which is very, very lucky for me. But I, I'm, I, I just, uh, you know, the three-year plan, the five-year plan. I remember people asking me that at interviews when I was finishing college, you know, I interviewed for like an insurance job and something else. And they always want, and I thought, Oh God, I don't know. Who knows what I want to be in five years. I have no <laughs> idea. Tomorrow I'll go in five years. Exactly. Well, that's certainly been obviously a recipe for success. And thanks for sharing that with our listeners. So now you're several years out of college and you've decided to leave the theater and pursue a career in journalism. Take us through your start. How did you get your first break? And then ultimately how did you land at Fox news? So they sort of overlapped each other. While I was waiting tables, I um, was also doing this fact-checking and research job because I needed two jobs to pay my rent. So um, the woman, Maggie Elliott, who I worked for at Corporate Finance Magazine, which was just a small trade magazine, she said to me, you know, would you like to try writing? Would you like to try your hand at um, doing some very small pieces for the magazine? So I started doing that. And then she offered me a job a full-time job. And that was sort of when I had to make a decision to leave one life behind and, and throw my lot in with the other. And it was pretty, it felt pretty natural. It felt like the absolute right thing to do at that time. So I started working with that magazine and then I made my way to uh, the Wall Street Journal where I worked at the Wall Street Journal Report. I wanted to get a job on the newspaper, um, but they didn't have anything for me at the time in the, uh, in the jobs that I had applied for. So there was a job opening in, in the public relations department. So I just thought, well, maybe that's just a way to get in the door. So I did that. Didn't really like that. It wasn't my thing, but I, it was perfect because I was there for six months. And then I sort of weaseled my way into the Wall Street Journal television network, which was doing a weekend business news program and basically, you know, kept bugging them and saying, I'll do anything. I'll be, you know, your production assistant. I will sweep the floor. I'll do whatever you want. Um, 
And so eventually Chris Graves hired me there. Great boss. And then again, really, I, I kept pushing these story ideas. I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to get out in the field and do my own stories. And uh, after I finally wore him down and he let me go out <laughs> with a camera and shoot a few stories. And uh, he then eventually said to me, you know, we have this Tokyo uh, business affiliation and they want someone to do an on-camera you know, business minute for Tokyo. So three of us went in there to do sort of a, a read through in front of the camera. I'd never been in front of the camera um, in news before. So I remember my, I was smiling and my jaw was kind of frozen and I couldn't, my cheeks were literally shaking <laughs> because I couldn't talk. I was so nervous. <laughs> and um, for some reason they, they picked me. So that was the beginning. And then the more I did it, the more relaxed I became. And then I started to love, you know, sort of the high wire act of, um, you know, of the whole thing. So, uh, and then I went from there to CNBC where I worked on the floor of the New York stock exchange and they, they put me down there on day one. They hired me as a reporter put me down to go to the stock exchange, you know, um, here's the key to the little door of our booth where we work. And, um, you know, this is pre nine 11, of course. So I just like walked in the back, in the door of the stock exchange, went up this back, you know, staircase and there weren't really many, anybody there. It was way before trading hours. And, uh, I turned on the computer and they said, you know, well, you're going to need to talk to some people to do a morning report where you're going to be on at, you know, nine twenty with a pre-market report. So give us two minutes of something. <laughs> so I remember going down to the floor of the New York stock exchange. And really I was like, I had been a financial reporter for, you know, a couple of years, but doing long form stories, not market coverage. So I, I just sort of tapped a couple of guys on the shoulder and said, you know, what do you expect to happen today? And why would that happen? And what stocks do you think will be moving? And I had my notepad. I just kept scribbling down everything they said, basically. And then there was a little camera that was perched on the balcony above the floor. And, you know, the producer, uh, I put my earpiece in and they said, you see that little camera up there, on, you know, hanging on the side of the thing? I said, yes, I do. All right, you're going to talk into that. All right, we're coming to you in 30 seconds. Okay. So I did this, you know, I spieled off this two minute report on what the traders had told me they expected to happen that day. And um, afterwards I thought, okay, that's it. They're just going to probably call me and say like, okay, thanks a lot. You know, we don't need you anymore. But um, so I called back to the office and they said, that was good. Can you do another one at nine forty? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that was pretty much the way that went. Um, and it was a great experience working down there. Maria Bartiromo was down there at the time and Nicole Petalides and, you know, people who, became lifelong friends. So that, and I met a lot of people working on the floor of the stock exchange who I became good buddies with as well. And, uh, it was a great education for me. It was a terrific experience and it was like reporting in the field essentially, because, you know, it had that feeling to it. Um, back then there was so much activity on the floor of the stock exchange, you know, exactly. people were actually doing huge trades and there was buzz and excitement and all the specialists would run to, you know, one tower or the other. And you knew something was happening. So you'd get over there and try to find out what the story was. Um, it was like covering a fire, you know, it was very, very interesting. So I loved that. That was great. So you start on the floor as a reporter for CNBC, you then move upstairs to the anchor mm -hmm. desk up there. Yeah. And then ultimately transition over to Fox. What led to that, that move for you? So, um, 
you know, business news was sort of my way into doing news. When I got the job at the financial magazine, it was, it was not my love of finance. It was my love of, of writing and journalism. So I had to learn business and learn finance in the job, but I always wanted to eventually make my way back to politics. And, um, so that door opened for me, like in 2003, I would say I was at, uh, I was at CNBC during nine 11 and, um, you know, that was an extraordinary experience because obviously it had such a dramatic impact on everyone on Wall Street, as you know, very, very well. Um, and then I, I wasn't really looking to go anywhere, although, and Fox reached out to me and said, you know, Roger Ailes would like to meet with you and your agent and, and your husband, we're going to have dinner. So that's what we did. And, um, we had a, a really good talk. Neil Cavuto was there as well. And at that time, they were thinking about starting a business channel. So, um, you know, we were just sort of talking in very broad terms, nothing specific. I was um, looking towards the future a year or so down the road. And then uh, eventually, you know, I just relayed the message that I, if I were to make a move, I, did, I wanted to be in politics. I wanted to cover politics. I didn't want to cover business anymore. I wanted to get over to my main, my main love. And uh, eventually I got that spot to do that at, at, at Fox. So that was really exciting. And when I got here, um, it was the New Hampshire primaries in 2004. And so an election was underway. So I couldn't have been more excited. And by that summer, I convinced them to give me some part in the convention. I literally said, I'll stand on the street corner outside and talk about, you know, how many people are going in and out. and. Uh, they said, no, we're going to put you on the floor. You and Major Garrett and Carl Cameron are going to be our three floor reporters. And you're going to just, you know, tell us the stories that are going on around you and uh, what's happening on the convention floor. So honestly, to that, to this day, that election and being on the floor for that election was one of the most exciting times of my career. It was like, you know, I, I was just sort of peppering these reports with, what was going on around me and the people that were there, you know, the first president Bush was there and all of these people sitting right near me and just grabbing people for interviews. So that was, a, that was really an exhilarating time. Right place, right time. That's fascinating. So I'd like to, if we could just go back to theater for a moment. Yeah. Some people draw comparisons between the parts of acting and the news business that people can see but when I think of these two professions, I think of what happens behind the scenes, you know, the intense preparation that goes into both jobs, uh, the need to be able to digest and present information, obviously to improvise in a moment's notice. You talked about the high wire act earlier, you know, the years of hard work to become an overnight success. Do you see those parallels or other ones between theater and the news profession? Well, I think that in both, in both, you want to reach out to people and to connect with them and to tell stories to them. That's why I named my show The Story, because for me, it's always been about all of us in the newsroom saying, did you see this story? Did you hear that story? Oh, this is such a great story. We have to do that. So those stories are what drive me. And that was true for me in theater. And it's true for me in news. You know, the human experience is at the root of all of these things. And when we do a good job telling a story, covering an election, it's because we're tapping into what 
the human experience of being in America is right now, what's on people's minds, what they care about, what they're going to be thinking about when they vote. So for me, it's the human experience that connects both of those things. Uh, the preparation is intense on both fronts. Um, I think in, in theater, it's a little bit more, it, the th theater's more stable in a strange way because the play is the play. And um, things change in the dynamic of performing it over time, but the news changes literally all the time. So we break form constantly. You know, we'll have a meeting um, midday today and we'll map out what we're going to do, but that could all change by three or four o'clock. So that you have to be very flexible and able to kind of move quickly from one thing to the next and go with it. And I think that cable news viewers in particular are very aware of that. And so they are very forgiving of us when we sort of say, oh, well, this is just coming in. We're just getting our arms around this situation. Here are the two things we know. Um, and we're going to find out more for you. So I love it when our best plans sort of, you know, go up in smoke and we turn gears and move our attention to something else. That is really sort of the most exciting part of the job. We all know how journalism, journalism has changed since you were eight or nine years old watching the Watergate hearings. We've gone from two or three newscasts a night to the 24-7 news cycle. How has that change reshaped the news business and, as importantly, public opinion? Well, there's no doubt that news has become more siloed. Um, you know, there's MSNBC and there's Fox and there's CNN, and each one of those have people on them with very strong opinions. And I think that people gravitate to those channels, obviously, based on their own, their own feelings. Um, you know, I, I work in the news division here with Brett Baer and Shannon Bream and Bill Hemmer, and we try to be very, um, very down the middle. We try to put both sides of every, every opinion and equation on our programs every day. And so that's something that we take very seriously. That being said, we know that there is, you know, there are a lot of viewers who watch Fox who are conservative. Um, there's 30% of them who say they're registered independents. So, you know, there are persuadable people here and there are people, you know, there are people who have very wide opinions. I always say, you know, that there's not one, when, if anyone meets or talks to us, they know that, that there's a lot of variety and range in the way that we do things and approach things and the way that we think. So, but within those sort of, you know, preconceived notions of what's happening at each place, it's different now, you know, it isn't, it's not, you know, sort of the plain vanilla straightforward uh, news programming that we all grew up with. So I, for me, I think each one of us has to deal with our hour and what we do on our terms. And for me, that means, you know, being fair and being straightforward. My, my favorite compliment is when someone comes up to me and says, you know, I like to watch you because I know you're going to give it to me straight. And I think you're fair. And I feel like I know you. So that's, that's who I am. And that's what I do. Um, you know, it's different for, it's different for every hour on all the channels. So, but it's, it's definitely a much more wild and woolly world than it used to be in news. And um, there's a lot of, a lot of blurred lines. Um, so I, I actually think that at Fox, that our news programming is some of the most balanced programming you're going to find anywhere. 
Well, I think to your point there, you truly are fair and, ba- fair and balanced. Uh, and I do watch you every night after dinner washing the dishes. And so thanks uh, for, uh, for your delivery on that. Thanks, Chris. You know, as you look at public opinion today, how do you see the November 3rd election shaping up? And, and where will you be on election night? So we will be here on election night, but between now and that in New York, we always do our live coverage from here because we have the biggest studio space here uh, for coverage. But between now and then we will be at all of the debates. So we're starting with Cleveland and uh, working our way Salt Lake for the VP. And then we've got um, Florida and we've got uh, Belmont, Tennessee. So we'll be all over the country, which I love because that's when you really get the feel for what people are talking about and what they care about. I think in New York, we get very New York centered and we don't realize that people are looking at things very differently all across the country. Um, So that's a great part of sort of soaking up what's going on with people. We're also doing a lot of voter panels. So we bring voters in from different areas in the battleground states in particular and ask them why they're undecided, what they're thinking, what the most important issues are to them. Um, So we're going to be sort of soaking all that up over the the course of the next couple of months. And, uh, you know, I don't think anybody knows where this is going. Um, And I certainly would not venture to guess at this point. It's going to be a tight race, as we have seen is typical in American elections. And um, I would say any one of, you know, two to 14 major events could happen between now and then in the next two months. Yeah, two months is forever in in politics and certainly presidential politics. So very good point. We were speaking earlier of your time waiting tables. Uh, I understand that one of your college summer jobs was waiting tables at Thompson's Clam Bar on Cape Mm -hmm. Cod. That's true. How in the world did you end up waiting tables at a place called Thompson's Clam Bar? Well, Thompson's Clam Bar was a legendary place. And... um, it does not exist anymore, sadly, but it was right on the water in Hartwichport, and it was a great place to work. Um, we all wore these like red, like sailor dress things um, because we were on the water, and it was enormous. So you had a number, you know, like a team number, and then your number because you know they would call the waiters and waitresses to come through to pick up your food based on your number. It was. But it was an amazing place. My parents took me there when I was a kid. My grandfather loved going there. My family's always vacationed in Cape Cod. So it was a natural place for me to want to spend the summer and make money. And um, one of the people who used to hang out there all the time and come in for chowder was Tip O'Neill. And we were told, you know, everyone had to park. All the guests had to park in this parking lot across the street. And there was like a little... um, you know, there was a valet service and everything, but there was this one car, this big old car. I think it was like an old Cadillac or maybe an Oldsmobile would just kind of pull up and park right next to the front door. And then he'd go inside and that was tip. Tip could park wherever he wanted. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he would come in for chowder a lot. So it's, it was a great New England spot. So I have great memories of, of working at Thompson's Clamber. I wish it was still there. Well, you and I have swapped stories in restaurants for places we like to go to on the Cape. Uh, but obviously, most of our listeners have never been to Cape Cod. And they mainly know it through the movie Jaws, which obviously has scared yeah. millions of people out of the ocean for, for right. decades now. But apparently, you're fascinated by great white sharks. You know, what's wow. the deal with you and sharks? Well, you know, in Chatham, where we like to go, has one of the largest great white shark populations in the world. So that's why I'm fascinated by them because I'm surrounded by them. And, um, you know, for people in our neck of the woods up there, Jaws is not just a movie. It's, you know, it's real. And 
one of these days I'm going to go on the shark expedition that takes you out. And then they have a spotter plane that goes up in the sky and they pot, they spot the sharks and you can see them up close, but you know, they're scary. And, um, I was so fascinated by Jaws as a kid and the movie theater in Chatham still, they play Jaws at like nine 30 at night, a lot in the summer and seeing it on the big screen again, which I did not too long ago. I highly recommend because it's sort of a staple in my house. I mean, my <laughs> husband, like, I think he's probably seen it like 50 times. He could quote every line in it. So, um, it's just something I've always been fascinated with, but I really hope that I never have, you know, an encounter that's too close because we have had some very tragic things happen over the past uh, two years, you know, one up in Maine and one right on the Cape in Truro. So um, it's not, it's like anything in life that you have to be respectful of, of the ocean and of these creatures. And so I love to swim in the ocean, but I stay very close to shore. Here with Martha McCallum, I'm Chris Meek. This is Next Steps Forward. We'll be right back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. 
To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're with Fox News anchor Martha McCallum today. Martha, I know at the start of the program that you've covered a lot of major stories. One of your biggest interviews was with Supreme Court nominee Brent Kavanaugh and his wife in the midst of his very contentious Senate confirmation hearing. Obviously, all kinds of accusations there. You were granted the only interview with the Kavanaugh's during that moment in history. Obviously, that was a very tense time for them, a tense time for the country. Uh, It certainly had to be quite a challenge for you. And as I understand it, you only found out that you're doing the interview on your way to work that day. You know, how does, how do you prepare yourself for an exclusive story like that? Yeah, uh, that was a remarkable day. And the thing was that we were so immersed in that story anyway. So it wasn't like I was starting at square one. There were already a lot of things that I knew I would want to ask him uh, if I had the opportunity, but it was, I don't think at, at that point moment, too many of us thought he was actually going to sit down for an interview because he was about to go in for the next hearing. Uh, the, it, it wasn't going well, obviously, for him at that point. And there were all of these accusations. So I got a call on my way to work in the morning saying, you know, we have, uh, we've got this interview. He wants to sit down with you at 2.30 in Washington with his wife. So I was in a car service and we literally just turned around and started driving towards Washington. And I pulled out my notepad and started writing as many of the questions as I could think of that I wanted to ask and just going back over things he'd said before and, you know, matching up what I wanted to sort of press him on in terms of the experiences that we had all heard so much about. And um, it was I just remember getting there, getting to the hotel where the room had been reserved. It was hard for them to find a spot to do it. Obviously, everybody, every camera was following him all over Washington. So uh, we had to do it in a way that wasn't going to draw too much attention. And, you know, then I just sat down in front of him and his wife, who were just in this excruciating moment in their lives. They're little kids that they're trying to explain some of this to. And, you know, you could just see the pain in their faces and the trepidation. So it was challenging because I had things that I needed to ask him, which were graphic and difficult, but I had to ask him those questions. And I tried to create an environment where it wasn't about me. It was just about what needed to be asked. And I also knew that they would not have sat down unless they knew, unless they wanted to address these things head on. Um, And it it was, you know, it was definitely, it was, there was not a lot of chatting, you know? I mean, we literally walked in there and we sat down. I said, hi, introduced myself. They were not, you know, they were not in a chatty mood. (laughs) I think they were very nervous. And afterwards it was that they were relieved it was over. And then it was, it was done. But I do think that really one of the biggest impacts of that is that, you know, the first time he had been in the hearing, he was really super buttoned up. Then he did the interview in between where he sort of started to open up a little bit. Then when he went into the next hearing, he was like, 
a rocket. Like everything was coming out. It was yelling at people. It was like this whole different Brett Kavanaugh than we had seen <laughs> in the earlier stages. So I think that it was kind of a progression and, um, you know, it, it was just interesting for me as a, as a journalist to sort of watch, um, him go through those, those stages. Um, but it was definitely an interview that I'll always remember because you just look at people who are in this moment in their life. And now I look at him and I think, wow, uh, you know, he, he got through that whole process. He's a Supreme court justice. And I'm not surprised that he doesn't do too many interviews anymore. I think he's, um, I think he wants to stick to business for probably several years would be my guess before he starts speaking out too much. Of all the stories you've covered, what was your favorite one? Or that that may be too difficult to answer a uh, question to answer, but if there isn't one particular one, what makes for a good story as far as you're concerned? Well, I would say the most impactful story for me was September 11th. And it changed our lives so much. So, and during that period, you know, in the days that followed, I did some interviews with people. Jimmy Dunn comes to mind um, at Sandler O'Neill, who lost his best friend and so many of the people that he worked with, all because he, you know, just his, his partner uh, just said to him, go play golf tomorrow morning. It's okay. And I watched him rebuild his company with the help of people who literally came in off the street and left other jobs to rebuild his business. So those stories are, you know, they just, they're really close to me. And um, I think that's the most it's certainly for all of us who live in this area, it's just the, a day that we'll never forget. And of course we just had the 19th anniversary, which is amazing to, to see that it was that long ago now, but that's definitely the story that impacted me the most, my thinking the most, um, you know, I wouldn't call it a favorite story, obviously, but it was, a, it was the most important story that I covered. And then, you know, there've been the, the fun things too, like the Royal wedding and the, you know, birth of Prince George and sort of, you know, hanging around in London for days, watching these things unfold and seeing all of that up close, which is just a spectacle, a beautiful, beautiful spectacle to have a great memory of having been part of and witnessed up close. So those are, you know, really special times and stories that I, that I loved covering. And you talk about 9-11 and obviously over the last several days, you know, Americans have been marking and remembering that 19th anniversary. And like you, I can't believe uh, it's been 19 years, you know, and how it really changed our nation. You know, last week when we were talking about the show, you and I talked about how the country really came together in the wake of 9-11. You know, you've observed how two crucial qualities, you know, how do you feel that that really helped change the world coming forward in terms of 19 years ago, we came together and now, you know, we talked earlier about the presidential election and how divisive things are right now. It's just so different. You know, I think if any of us could capture the feeling after 9-11 in a bottle and keep it forever, we would. The extraordinary outpouring. I will never forget the fire trucks that came from all across the country coming over the bridges to help, to dig, to support. Um, the flags that went up on every single house in every neighborhood where I live in New Jersey. 
and the arms that were wrapped around these families, you know, in my town in Ridgewood, we lost 11 parents. So my kids were growing up with these, you know, children who had lost their father and in a couple of cases, their mother, um, you know, it was just an amazing time of pulling together as a country. I think you can really only compare it to maybe World War II in terms of unity and patriotism. So I, like so many Americans, I am distraught by what I see in the country right now and how divided it is. And, you know, a friend sent me this Nike ad that was played for all of the kids and all the athletes in her school about unity and about coming together and about Black Lives Matter. And, you know, there was a little bit of controversy among the community of the school about uh, the kids watching all this video, which is, you know, was mostly just about unity and pulling together. But I said, after I watched it, she said, tell me what you think of this video. I said, the thing that bothers me the most about that video, most of it is, you know, is great, but there's not one mention in the whole video of the United States or of America, those things are not said and there's no flag in the whole thing. And yet the theme of it is all about unity and pulling together. But the fact that the flag would be sort of a red flag that might catch people's attention and be divisive breaks my heart. So that's where we are right now. I know that that's not where we will stay. I do believe that we will come together. I hope it's not because of a great crisis, you know, but this, pandemic has been so divisive politically that it's shocking. It, it, you might've thought that it would bring the country together, but sadly it has not. So, you know, I think that the great thing that pulls together the, the heroes of 9-11 and the heroes of World War II is, is humility, serving something bigger than themselves and sacrifice, the willingness to sacrifice for other people. And that is something that I hope we can regain as a nation. You've had a lot of successes throughout your career. Let's talk about your most recent one. You've been described as a voracious reader, and I'm especially curious about how that interest or habit contributes to your success. We're going to talk about your book in a bit, but how do you choose the topics and specific books that you read? So when I say I'm a voracious reader, it's mostly news, (laughs) stories all day things that I read three minutes of or two minutes of. So that kind of reading experience is sort of across the board. And I try to take in as much information and editorials and opinion pieces and news stories all day long as I can. So that's kind of a a barrage kind of reading, but I love to read. I love to read history books. You know, I read the the splendid and the vile recently. I read a book called Clementine about uh, Churchill's wife, which I thought was fascinating. So that's what I like to read when I can just read for pleasure um, are books like that, that where I learn, I learned something more that I didn't know. I feel like there's a lot of missing history in school these days, and I think I've suffered from it. So I try to fill in the gaps wherever I can. Well, clearly your interest in historical biographies played a part in your decision to write Unknown Valor, a story of family, courage, and sacrifice from Pearl Harbor to Iwo Jima. You said that that was a very moving experience. You, you called it a labor of love and the most satisfying professional experience of your life. We talked about journalists having great stories. It sounds like there's more than one great story that came from that project. So growing up, my mother shared with us the letters that her cousin, Harry, who was her first cousin, very close to him. She was an only child, so he was like her big brother. And he was killed at Iwo Jima at the age of 18. And he had written these beautiful letters home. 
so I was always moved by them. And I would pull them out over the years and I would share them with people I knew, you know, read this letter. It's such an extraordinary story. It's just a kid, you know, in the middle of 7,000 miles away from home um, with a bunch of other kids who were 18 years old and who had, you know, six weeks prior to that, they'd been at their, at their senior prom. So it's a slice of life in war story about six different young men and their experiences growing up uh, and, and, finding themselves in the middle of the Pacific in a place that was just completely alien to them, having grown up in, um, in Arlington, Massachusetts, as was Harry Gray's hometown and, you know, Gulfport, Mississippi and Lockport, New York and all over the country. So I just wove their stories together until they get to the point where they meet up on Iwo Jima and some of them survive and some of them don't. So through the writing and the research, I was really astonished to find that I, I found with the help of a young researcher named Dean Laubach, who helps other people find uh, their people that, you know, in their families who were in World War II through um, his Marine Corps group. So I found two men who were alongside Harry Gray when he was killed, and I got to know both of them. So through that, I was able to introduce them to my aunt, who's Harry's sister. And we had a couple of amazing reunions. So it, it was just an amazing experience for me. I feel like I got way more out of it than anyone else did. Um, and I'm glad that people, you know, really seem to have loved the book and the book has done really well. And um it's just those people sort of come to life through the telling of their stories. And I've cut piles of letters and personal stories that people have sent me telling me about their relatives in World War II. And it's amazing. When I did the book tour, people would come up to me and say, you know, my three uncles and my grandfather all fought in World War II. Or my, you know, just the, the depth in some of these families of military service is just so impressive to me. So it was it was a hard thing to do writing the book. It was way harder than I ever, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And I kept, you know, Oh no, we have to go all the way back to Pearl Harbor to start the book, you know? And, and it was just, it just became this all encompassing beast, which I, you know, I already had enough, a full-time job and that was enough anyway, but I'm so grateful that I did it because it really was one of the most rewarding professional experiences of my whole life. Any other books on the horizon? have a couple of ideas. Um, I'm not doing anything till after the election's over, but I, I have a couple of ideas for projects that I'm thinking about doing after November 3rd. And hopefully the election ends on November 3rd. Exactly. <laughs> or exactly. that deadline will get pushed later. <laughs> well, Martha, thanks for your time. We've reached the end of a fascinating conversation with Fox News, Martha McCallum. Truly appreciate you being here. So thank you very much. Yeah, you're pretty good at interviewing, Chris. You got to. Uh, <laughs> I learned from the best. Into this, I think. Great oh, to talk you. to you. Likewise, Take thanks care. for your time, Martha. Have a good day. You bet. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.